0: Hello and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Husher's Program Notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparola, and concerts by the CSO on Thursday, December 8th through Saturday the 10th feature guest conductor Dalia Stostevska and violinist Hilary Hahn. The program includes the first Chicago Symphony Orchestra performances of Birds of Paradise II by Andrea Tarodi, Tchaikovsky's Violin Concerto, and after intermission, Bela Bartok's Concerto for Orchestra. And here are Philip Usher's program notes on the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto in D, a work lasting about 34 minutes. This violin concerto was the best thing to come out of a very bad marriage. In May eighteen seventy seven, Tchaikovsky received a letter from Antonina Milyukova, a former student, he couldn't remember, who said she was madly in love with him. Earlier that year, Tchaikovsky had entered into an extraordinary relationship conducted entirely by correspondence with Naja von Meck, and he found this combination of intellectual intimacy and physical distance ideal. In order to keep his homosexuality from the public, He impulsively seized on the convenient, though unpromising, idea of marriage to a woman he didn't even know. On June 1st, Tchaikovsky visited Antonina Milyukova for the first time. A day or two later, he proposed. The marriage lasted less than three months, but it must have seemed... A lifetime. Tchaikovsky quickly learned to despise Antonina. He couldn't even bring himself to introduce her as his wife, and he was shocked to learn that she knew not one note of music. In September, he botched a pathetic suicide attempt. He waded into the freezing Moscow River, hoping to contract a fatal chill, and then fled to St. Petersburg. On October 13th, Anatoly, the composer's brother, took Tchaikovsky on an extended trip to Europe. His thoughts quickly turned to composing, confirming what he wrote to Najda von Meck during the very worst days. My heart is full. It thirsts to pour itself out in music. He returned to composition... "'cautiously, beginning with the works "'that had been interrupted "'by the unfortunate encounter with Antonina, "'he completed the Fourth Symphony in January 1878 "'and finished Eugene Onegin the next month. "'By March, he had recovered his old strength. "'He settled briefly in Claren, Switzerland, "'and there, in the span of 11 days, "'he sketched a new work, "'a violin concerto in D major. "'He completed the scoring two weeks later. "'When he returned to Russia in late April,' there were still lingering difficulties. Antonina alternately accepted and rejected the divorce papers and even extracted the supreme revenge of moving into the apartment above his. But the worst year of his life was over. The violin concerto was launched by a visit to Clarence from Tchaikovsky's student and friend and possible lover, the violinist Josef Kotek, who arrived at Tchaikovsky's door with a suitcase full of music. Kotek had been a witness at Tchaikovsky's wedding, by the way. The next day, they played through Lalo's Symphony Español, and Tchaikovsky was immediately taken with the idea of writing a large work for violin and orchestra. He liked the way that Lalo does not strive after profundity, but carefully avoids routine, seeks out new forms, and thinks more about musical beauty than about observing established traditions, as do the Germans. He plunged in at once, and found to his delight that the music came to him easily." Shortly after he arrived in Clarence, he had begun a piano sonata, but it didn't go well, and he quickly gave it up. Each day, Kotek offered advice on violinistic matters, and he learned the score page by page as Tchaikovsky wrote it. On April 1st, when the work was completely sketched, they played through the concerto for the composer's other brother, Modest. Both Josef and Modeste thought the slow movement was weak, Four days later, Tchaikovsky wrote a new one. The original Andante became the meditation from Souvenir de Noucher. He immediately began scoring the work and unveiled the finished product on April 11th. Clearly, he was back on track. However, new problems awaited Tchaikovsky. Although the concerto was dedicated to the great violinist Leopold Auer and the premiere was already advertised for the following March 22nd, Auer stunned the composer by dismissing the piece as unplayable. Tchaikovsky was deeply wounded, and the premiere was postponed indefinitely. Coming from such an authority, Tchaikovsky said, our rejection had the effect of casting this unfortunate child of my imagination into the limbo of the hopelessly forgotten. Two years passed by. Then one day, Tchaikovsky's publisher informed him that Adolf Brodsky, a young violinist, had learned the concerto and persuaded Hans Richter and the Vienna Philharmonic to play it in concert. That performance in December 1881 was no doubt horrible because the orchestra, under-rehearsed and reading from parts chock-full of mistakes, played pianissimo. Throughout to avert disaster. Reviewing the concerto, the often ill-tempered critic Edward Hanslick wrote that for the first time he realized that there was music quote, whose stink one can hear, unquote. Tchaikovsky never got over that review and for the rest of his life it is said he could quote it by heart. Although Hanslick stood by his opinion, Auer later admitted that the concerto was merely difficult, not unplayable, and he taught it to his students, including Misha Elman and Yasha Heifetz, who have since played it in Chicago. Hanslick's dislike is hard to understand because this is hardly an inflated, pretentious, and vulgar work, although those are the words he used. In fact, Tchaikovsky's lyric gift has seldom seemed so naturally flowing effortlessly through all three movements. If there's any deficiency here, it's one of form and construction, not content. Even the most casual listener may find it disconcerting that, as with the popular Tonight We Love tune in the B-flat major concerto, the lovely theme with which Tchaikovsky begins vanishes into thin air after a few seconds, never to return. Hanslick also took offense at the demanding virtuosic solo part, writing in terms that crop up in reviews of new music to this day. The violin is no longer played, it is pulled about, torn, beaten, black and blue. What Hanslick failed to notice is the way Tchaikovsky has taken care to cushion even the most challenging, exhibitionistic passages in music of unforced lyricism and restraint. Even Hanslick admitted that the lovely slow movement made progress in winning him over. But the brilliant finale, with its driving folk-like melodies and very Russian second theme over the low bagpipe drone of open fifths, was too much for him. And he concluded sputtering about wretched Russian holidays and the smell of vodka. Even our had to admit that Hanslick's comment did credit neither to his good judgment nor to his reputation as a critic. The concerto has made its way in the world, he wrote years later, after it had in fact become one of Tchaikovsky's most beloved works. And after all, that is the most important thing. It is impossible to please everybody. Program Notes by Philip Husher on the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto. And now, on to Bela Bartok's Concerto for Orchestra, a work lasting about 35 minutes. For all the prestige his music commands today, among American orchestras, Bela Bartok was unhappy and largely ignored during the last four years of his life, which he spent in this country. The sad departure from his native Hungary in late 1940 to escape the Nazi invasion was a nightmare itself for both Bartok and his wife, Dita, with a furtive night train trip through Italy to Switzerland, passage by bus... Through France, a merciless customs inspection at the Spanish border, a night spent wandering through Lisbon in search of a place to sleep, and finally a rough crossing on an American cargo ship with all luggage left behind. The first weeks in New York were little better. The English language was a minefield, and home was now a Spartan hotel room. The Bartoks were perplexed by American ways like eating cracked wheat for breakfast, and they were dumbfounded by a subway system so vast they once spent three hours wandering underground before they emerged shamefaced into the sunlight. Bartok complained of creative impotence, and in truth he wrote nothing of substance during his first two years here. He played a few scattered concerts, including a duo recital with his wife in Chicago that got very bad reviews. One, As bad as I never got in my life, according to the composer, his mastery of our tongue, still as uncertain as his verdict on life in America. In April 1942, Bartok's health took a turn for the worse. Several medical examinations proved inconclusive. There were good days and bad periods of high fever, occasional hospital stays. Pain in his joints made walking difficult. It was truly the beginning of the end. And then... Like the miracle, great music always is. A masterpiece was born. In May 1943, Serge Kusevitsky, music director of the Boston Symphony, visited Bartok in his hospital room, prepared to write a check for $500, half payment for an orchestral piece he wished to commission in memory of his late wife, Olga. Bartok was reluctant, fearing he wouldn't be able to complete the work, but he finally accepted the offer and Kusevitsky's check. Had Bartok known the truth, he never would have agreed. The suggestion for the commission had not come directly from Kusevitsky, never a champion of Bartok before, but from Josef Dzigeti and Fritz Reiner, who greatly admired Bartok's music and knew him well enough to know that he would refuse any effort he viewed as charity." The Bartoks spent the summer at Saranac Lake in the Adirondacks. At first, Bartok busied himself prowling around the local library. He read an English translation of Don Quixote with no apparent difficulty. By mid-August, he was ready to put pen to paper and found to his surprise that he was working practically day and night on the Kusevitsky Commission. At least temporarily, his health improved, and when he returned to New York in October, he took the finished score with him. Perhaps it is due to this improvement he had written to Ziggity, or it may be the other way around, that I have been able to finish the work that Kusevitsky commissioned. Kusevitsky, who conducted the first performance with the Boston Symphony in December 1944, called the Concerto for Orchestra the best orchestral piece of the last 25 years, an assessment Few were to challenge. A word about Bartók's title, Concerto for Orchestra. Bartók's work wasn't the first but only the most celebrated example to bear this seemingly paradoxical title, which focuses the spotlight not on one solo instrument but on the orchestra itself. Hindemith, Walter Piston, and Bartók's fellow Hungarian and dear friend Zoltán Kodai had written concertos for orchestra before him, just as Michael Tippett, Elliot Cardiner, and Shulamit Ron would after his great success. The Concerto for Orchestra is a particularly 20th century idea, a reflection of the unprecedented virtuosity of the modern orchestra and of the desire to pour new wine into old bottles. With no traditional form to follow, Bartók picked one he often favored, a symmetrical mirror-like arrangement of five movements with a large, dark-hued andante at the center, light, quicker interludes on either side, and a powerful, fast movement to anchor each end. The first sounds we hear are full of mystery and gloom, which don't begin to suggest the sunlight, dancing, and outright humor that are right around the corner. The tone of both the opening movement and the central elegia is stern, even tragic. The second and fourth movements will disrupt the mood, but only the life-asserting finale can dispel it. The gioco della copia is one of Bartók's most celebrated creations in which pairs, copie, of instruments take turns presenting an unprepossessing little tune launched by two bassoons at the interval of a sixth and followed by oboes in thirds, clarinets in sevenths, flutes in fifths, and muted trumpets in major seconds. The elegia for Olga Kusovitsky is, in Bartok's words, a lugubrious death song. It's also a prime example of the composer's night music, full of haunting, evocative sounds and ultimately a deep calm. The intermezzo interrotto is exactly that, an interrupted intermezzo, the disruption being the march tune of Shostakovich's Leningrad Symphony. Bartók first heard the symphony on the radio in Saranac Lake and thought the marching theme so banal he couldn't resist saying so, in music that dissects the tune and then holds it up to the ridicule of the entire orchestra. It's also worth remembering that Bartok had long questioned Kusevitsky's championship of Shostakovich's music at the neglect of his own. Bartok wasn't a vindictive or mean-spirited man, but surely he enjoyed having the last laugh. The finale is dance music, brilliant and lively, especially in its Perpetua Mobile sections, based on a straightforward singable tune and constructed with the contrapuntal dexterity of a master craftsman. It is, above all, a life-affirming statement from a man close to death. Bartók attended the triumphant premiere of the Concerto for Orchestra in December 1944, perhaps detecting the first signs of a new wave of enthusiasm for his music. In the remaining months of his life, he completed all but the last few measures of the Third Piano Concerto. He left a viola concerto commissioned by William Primrose in a pile of sketches later reconstructed by Tibor Schalli. Bartok was unable to begin a 7th string quartet commissioned by Ralph Hawkes. Bartok died in West Side Hospital in New York City in September 1945. He was buried without ceremony or speeches in Ferncliff Cemetery in Hartsdale, New York. His widow, Dita, moved back to Budapest the following year and continued to play recitals of her husband's music. She died in November 1982. In July 1988, the remains of Béla Bartók were returned to his native Hungary for a state burial. Program notes by Philip Husher on Béla Bartók's Concerto for Orchestra. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.